This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, June 29, 2010. I'm Caleb Brown. Military spending is often sacrosanct among people who want to cut lots of other spending. But it's one of the few areas of the federal budget that can be cut, at least technically, with ease. So how to do it? Chris Preble, Director of Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute, is among scholars working on the Sustainable Defense Task Force, a group aimed at cutting military spending without sacrificing U.S. security. A report from the task force was released June 1st. A lot of people who are generally supportive of cuts to federal spending are reluctant to contemplate cuts to military spending. And the logic is that the the defense function is a core function of government. So among libertarians and conservatives who believe in a fairly narrow definition of what a core function of government is, uh, the military is one of those few things that we want our military want, want our government to do is to provide for our security. Um, the problem, of course, is that much of what we spend on our military is not really about defending the United States. It's about defending a lot of other countries that could defend themselves, a point I've t- you and I have talked about many times. But the urgency for us getting a handle on our military spending is growing because of the fiscal imbalance, because of the deficits, and again, deficits that are primarily driven by uh, long-term spending entitlements and, and whatnot. But in terms of the discretionary budget, the defense budget, the DOD budget, is the largest component of the discretionary budget, and it has grown dramatically uh, over the last uh, 12 or 15 years. The, The important number is that real military spending, national security spending in inflation-adjusted dollars have gr- has grown 86% over the last uh, 13 years, since 1998. Um, some of that is for the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, but even the DOD base budget, excluding for the wars, has grown dramatically. Uh, again, depending on what you include in that, it's grown 30 to 40%, somewhere in that range, in real dollars. And I think if we were to step back and, and start from scratch, ask ourselves, what does a country like the United States need to defend itself from the most likely threats that we are facing and likely to face in the future, uh, that we would have a very, very different military and one that was much smaller than the one we have today. Given that reorientation right. around strategy yes. and purpose, right. what should fall away in military spending. Right. The, most of the increases in military spending, especially since 9-11, have been in personnel, Army and Marine Corps total, and strength, as they call it, the number of people in uniform. And those, the number of people has increased to prosecute the wars, uh, and the costs to support those people in uniform have grown also very dramatically. Um, healthcare expenditures in the military now are are uh, growing even faster in some respects than healthcare expenses in the civilian economy. We have extended uh, additional benefits to military persons, not always as pay, but as we, we think of as in-kind benefits that are not always counted in total compensation for what our men and women in uniform earn as a function of them being, uh, you know, serving in the military. Um, I think most people recognize just how politically difficult it is to cut benefits for people who are serving and who are sac- making enormous sacrifices in, in places like in Iraq, Iraq and Afghanistan. But I think we've, we've 
misunderstood or, or not looked carefully enough at the actual size of the force, the number of people serving. So we make an argument in this report for substantially reducing the size of the Army and Marine Corps in particular, saying, look, we are not going to be fighting wars like we did in Iraq and Afghanistan. Most Americans recognize those wars do not advance our strategic interests and that we can do so with a far different strategy that does not depend on 100,000-plus troops on the ground in countries like that. If we are not going to be contemplating missions like that, then we don't need a military as large as the one that we built after 9-11. Frankly, we don't even need a military as large as the one that we had at the time of 9-11 because a lot of the other ground troops that we have in the Army and Marine Corps are in places where they're just not needed, places like Germany or Japan or South Korea, countries that are eminently capable of defending themselves and have chosen not to for a long time partly because the U.S. presence has discouraged them from doing so. So in terms of looking at the entire pot of uh, the entire DOD budget, the largest reductions are in personnel and especially in the Army and Marine Corps. In terms of the other key components of defense spending, procurement is a big one. We buy lots of things for our troops from uniforms and boots and, and bullets to big ticket items like planes and ships. Um, and there have been countless reports over the last uh, eight or ten years documenting the enormous cost growth in the procurement of big-ticket weapon systems. Well, we think that there are sensible strategies for reforming the way in which uh, weapon systems are designed and purchased, but ultimately that's not where you derive the greatest savings. The greatest savings comes from carefully scrutinizing what mission a particular airplane or ship is intended to serve, and then asking not how can we build that ship better or faster or, or less cost, in a cost, less costly way, but a much more fundamental question is how does that make us safer? Uh, a lot of the things that we spend money on right now does not advance U.S. security. It is, and in fact, some people will say quite candidly that it's more about domestic interest groups and political pressures for individual members of Congress to funnel uh, things. And that's part of the why the procurement is so, uh, the, the cost growth in procurement is so dramatic. If you live in the Washington, D.C. area, this is for listeners beyond the area, there are certain metro stops that you can visit and certain radio stations <laughs> that you can listen to yes. that at key times of the year will largely only broadcast essentially opposition ads between manufacturers yes, right. of uh, engines right. arguing and, that we need this engine. No, right. we need this engine. And it's, right. that has to be just a, a, a drop in the bucket compared to the size of the outlays for these systems. That's right. Uh, there, there is a lot of money spent in this media market marketing to essentially 535 people um, because presumably, and I think for the most part, this is true. Procurement officers in the Pentagon are are not political animals. They are really trying to establish a a to to obtain equipment at the lowest possible price that delivers uh, uh, according to specifications. Whereas members of Congress are driven by a different set of criteria. Um, and I think that this back and forth, you know, whether it's the tanker deal or the aircraft engines, uh, the debate over the, the Joint Strike Fighter engine is the big one right now, um, 
is is really comes down to a question of jobs. You're not going to resolve in a 30-second radio spot which engine or which tanker is most likely to keep the United States safe and secure. Um, the good news is that we are extraordinarily safe and secure by any measurable standard. So this really is a, a debate about you know, how many, how many angels are dancing on the head of a pin. It is really, really not consequential from a strategic perspective. Um, you know, the, the challenge for those of us who have been making the case for a smaller defense budget and a different strategy for a long time is that we bump up against this political reality that Congress has, I think for very good reasons, has fairly limited ability to funnel jobs to individual districts. And one of the few things they can do is point to a particular weapon system, a particular subcontract for a particular weapon system, and point to the jobs for 200 or 300 people in their district. And a lot of times we're talking about a very, very small number of people. My response to that is that they have an obligation as not just representatives of their constituents, but as as officers of the U.S. government to advance a, a, uh, a security agenda that, again, going back to the core function of government. And when they push a particular weapon system to employ 150 or 200 people in their district, they have to look in the face squarely all of their other constituents who do not benefit directly or secondarily or tertiarily from that weapon system and say, yes, it's true, this weapon system has absolutely nothing to do with whether or not you are safe and secure, but uh, it helps employ a few, a very few of your neighbors or people who live uh, in three counties over. And I think that's a very hard case to make if you force them to make that case in that way. In the experience of base realignment and closing, even that process uh, faces all sorts of challenges um, from interests that vary in their level of power trying to say, well, that's fine, but, but our base. Right. And, and that sends, tends to keep things uh, static. Right. Um, and that's why I think there were there there are some interesting things to learn from the way that the, the base realignment and closure process worked, which is it it cut against the traditional log rolling and you know kind of a horse trading process where one member's you know votes for the other member's project, et cetera. It essentially reversed that. It says if we're if you are going to cut my base, then I'm gonna make sure that everyone else is is also fairly, you know, dealt with fairly and according to a fairly objective standard. Now, again, you can go through and scrutinize every single decision and identify where politics kind of creeps in here and say this was not purely strategic. But I do think there are some lessons to, to take away. And the, the most important of which is that for all of the predictions of doom and gloom that came whenever a particular base or facility was closed, if you go back and you look at the way in which communities have adjusted to the closure of bases, then exactly the same argument can be made for the closure of, of airframe manufacturers or from tank plants or shipyards. There is a very dynamic underpinning of the American economy that will recover and adapt and ultimately be stronger than uh, even in those communities that have grown very, very dependent upon military spending for their livelihood. Chris Preble is Director of Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. You can read more on essential versus non-essential military spending at cato.org.